0: Go ahead and find today's text, if you would, in your copy of God's Word, Esther chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 18 of Esther chapter 2. Now, as you're queuing up your Bible uh, to find that particular text, I'm going to do something I have, haven't done in a while since I used to lead children's ministry. so I need to get a couple of things out real quick here. And no, it's not puppets, okay? Um, so, but I do need a help from one of the kids... Out there in our worship center today, one of the one of the kids, help me out here. Yes, come on up. Now, I haven't done this since children's camp of 2002, probably, and so I'm a little nervous, okay, um, whether or not this is going to work out or I can actually do this. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you this dry erase marker, and when I tell you to go, I want you just to scribble on that board, just just scribble. No no particular design or anything, just just scribble and then I tell you to stop I want you to stop so it'll be pretty quick I'll tell you to go you'll scribble and then I'll say stop okay, okay. so it's pretty simple and then I'm going to do something with that here in a second so go ahead and take the dry race marker go and stop okay there we go now step back over here and that's a beautiful scribble by the way thank you very much all right so here's what I'm going to do I'm going to try to do we'll see if I can do it I'm going to try to take your mess that's a mess Okay, And you're a little scribble-scrabble there. And I'm going to try to turn it into something, a picture of some sort. So I need to look at it here and see what I see. Um, Do I see some sort of a picture coming out of this? And I do, I do. All right, so we're going to take this. and You can come over here and watch me if you want to. Uh, This looks kind of like a a face to me. So we're going to turn this into an ear right there. And uh, this right here, that just looks like a big old mouth. And so let's do that and let's put some teeth in there for this guy all right we'll put a tongue down here too all right there's our mouth all right and let's see here it looks like uh, maybe these could be some eyebrows here there we go it's turning it into something put, put a little nose here all right to me it looks like he's kind of wearing some sort of cowboy hat or something so let's go with this He needs some hair coming out from underneath that cowboy hat all right um, and uh, you got some other squigglies here. This could certainly be like a, like a, like a bandana, right? Because that's what cowboys wear. All right. There we go. And then, you know, we could finish the picture and draw his whole body and everything. But there we go. Now we have a cowboy. Good job. That's excellent. Wow, what a, what a beautiful cartoon you drew there. Now, what I did was to take your, your mess, but I gave you the instructions to make a mess, didn't I? And I turned it into something... That was actually, well, I wouldn't call that beautiful, but it's a picture, okay? So thank you very much for helping me this morning, and you go ahead and have a seat there, all right? Now, what I'm doing by doing this little silly illustration here this morning was that I asked, asked her to put Scribble Scrabble up there on the board with no real vision or no real picture or image in mind, and with a few strokes of the pen, I was able to transform the Scribble Scrabble into a picture, Um, In today's text, what I want us to see is something similar to that going on. Uh, In today's text, what we have is a messy situation. It is really a mess, a mess of man's making. We see tough situations that God's people find themselves in. We see questionable decisions being made. We see a future that is cloudy. But all the while... God is at work. God is taking the messes and making something happen for his glory and ultimately for the good of his people. But God, unlike me, isn't reacting. He's not reacting to what is done. He is sovereign and he is providentially ruling over all the free actions, both good and bad, of mankind to bring about his sovereign purposes and plans. So with that in mind of this mess that we have in chapter 2 that God is doing something with I want us to please stand now as we read Esther chapter 2 the first 18 verses of this chapter Esther chapter 2 we're only going to read to verse 18 we'll finish chapter 2 next week along with all of chapter 3 Esther chapter 2 verse 1 we believe and that's why we stand in the honor of reading it that this is God's infallible inerrant word to us verse 1 Of chapter two. After these things, when the anger of King Ahashuaras had abated, he remembered Vashti, and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai. The king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, so when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai. Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king at Heshawaris, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period for their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired, to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again, unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now, the turn came, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's servant, who had charged the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Hashawaris in his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to this text today. When we think about what's happening. This is more than just a, a historical record of something that happened in a far off land 2,500 years ago. This is more than an exciting story with twists and turns. This is your word. It is meant to teach us. It is meant to guide us. It is meant to point us to Christ as is every text of Scripture in the entire Bible. So God, I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear this morning, eyes to see, Give me a mouth to speak, and Lord, may you receive all the glory and all the praise in everything we do this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I have a lot of little girls in my home, Um, therefore, needless to say, they love princesses and princess stories and princess movies. I remember when we went to Disney World when Olivia was four years old, and um, we stood in line for a ridiculously long time to meet the princesses. And there were, these, there, were the, there were the four main ones, right? You know the four main Disney princesses. It's, it's Cinderella, Aurora, Snow White, and Belle. I mean, those are the, those are the, the top four. And so they were there, and, and there was these women dressed up as princesses. Olivia didn't know that. And so we're in line. And, and so Olivia, if you knew Olivia at that age and maybe at this age, she likes to talk. And so she, we were, she all of a sudden we get to the front of the, where the princesses are, and she stops talking. She's just in awe of these princesses. And she walks up there and she got her little princess hat signed and and she was in awe of of the Disney princesses. And we all know the formula, right? A beautiful young lady, a dashing prince, love, romance, and happily ever after. Well, I hope I don't disappoint some of you in here, but this is not one of those stories. I'm sorry, it just isn't. As much as we may want to disney Esther, this is not a neat and clean and G-rated princess story. The handsome prince is in reality a tyrannical madman, and the fair princess makes some decisions that leave us squirming in our seats, to say the least. But the thing is, Esther was not written as an exemplary tale of heroism. When we come to the Bible, we are not ultimately seeking to copy and paste the ethics and the actions of of people, but rather we are seeking to first come and worship the holy and just God who saves imperfect and fallen people. If we turn the Bible into a book of moral tales about mortal heroes, then then we'll lose God and then we'll lose the gospel. And that's the very thing that's easy to do in a story like this one if we're not careful. Matter of fact, especially in a story like Esther, in this book in particular, because God isn't even mentioned in this book. That's right, you'll remember from last week that that we observed that that God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Neither is the temple or worship or praise, and and there's no outright mention of prayer. There are no miracles in the book. Spurgeon called it a, a record of wonders without a miracle. It seems to be on the surface, a pretty godless book. But it's not. And that's the genius of it. In this book, we see the hidden hand of God. It is clearly perceived as he providentially works all things together for the good of his covenant people and for the glory of his name. Thus our series is called Esther, God's Quiet Providence. God is quietly at work in Susa of Persia. We've seen it already in chapter 1. God quietly at work in, in King Ahasuerus' arrogant overindulgence as he throws an, an open, blow, open bar blowout to make much of himself, right? And then he's quietly at work in the, in the heart of Queen Vashti who has enough self-worth not to be paraded like a trophy before a bunch of drunken men. And he's quietly at work in in the king's tirade and the subsequent foolish political advice given to him by a self-serving advisor. So we saw last week that God was providentially at work. Number one, he supersedes man's power. His providence supersedes man's power. Number two, his providence superintends man's plans. And most importantly, number three that we saw from last week, God's providence safeguards God's people. And so in his providence, God was working. So I have three points this morning about how God is at work in the chapter we're looking at today. And the first is simply this. God is at work in the midst of regretful consequences. God is at work in the midst of regretful consequences. Verse 1, after these things, when the anger of King Hashawaris had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now it may feel like, as we pick up the story in chapter 2, it may feel like this is Ahasuerus, as we're reading it, it may feel like this is Ahasuerus waking up the next morning and shaking off his hangover and beginning to rethink things. But if we look quickly down at verse 16, we read that Esther became queen in the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign. And if you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, the feast that got this whole thing started, that got the whole ball rolling, happened in the third year of his reign. So four years have elapsed. Now it's possible that the search for a new queen took four years, but what's more likely is that um, what happens here, and what seems to be in line with historical records, is that what's happening here is that shortly after the feast, and remember I mentioned that it was common for Persian kings to give a grand feast to kind of get their officers and their, their noblemen pumped up before they went to war. So what's probably happening, what seems to be in line with historical records, is that after this feast, King Ahasuerus, who's also known as King Xerxes, leads Persia into a three-year-long campaign to try to conquer Greece that ended up in terrible failure. The result was a disastrous treasure-depleting defeat. History tells us that that the Greeks repelled Xerxes and after that he lost a lot of credibility. Matter of fact, that would eventually lead to his assassination years later. The Persian Empire itself began to take its first steps downward after that unwise campaign. So there was this three-year war campaign, and then if we look at this story, we see that it took a year to get the young ladies ready to participate in this thing that we'll talk about later. And so add that year plus the three years in the campaign, you have your four years gap that we see there between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So we read that he remembered Vashti. The word remembered here is more than he just recalled her or brought her to mind. It means he was dwelling upon her and pondering deeply what had happened to her. It seems to indicate that he regretted the consequences of his rash decision from three years prior. He also began to ponder what she had done and what had been decreed against her. It seems that the the consequences of his actions is that he is now lonely and he's having second thoughts. But being the proud king that he is and and the laws of the Medes and the Persians being what it was, meaning that it was irrevocable, all he could do was sit around and really sulk. And so this time his advisors step in again with some other, some more quote-unquote wise advice. And they say to him in verse 2, Let beautiful young virgins be brought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. Now, as I alluded to earlier, Cinderella, this is not. There's no fancy, romantic, elegant ball being proposed with the goal of finding a, a fair maiden for the king, No, this plan is pure wickedness, whereby women become disposable goods to satisfy the superficial and sensual appetite of the king. There's really no way to soften what's happening in this story today. What I want us to see is this, that in the wake of... One of the things I want us to see is in the wake of the king's rash decision from chapter 1, there are some serious consequences that come not only to him, he's missing his wife, But also there are consequences that now are going to reverberate and affect the whole kingdom. Young women are about to be taken from their homes and are about to be lined up to have a one-night stand with the king. And most of them will be consigned to a life of perpetual widowhood. And young men are about to be deprived of wives. Whole families are going to be forever changed because of this king's decisions. We read in verse 4 that this pleased the king and he did so. He had no concern for anyone but himself. He is impulsive, he's foolish, he's superficial, he's lustful, he's self-centered. This seems to be in line with what the Greek historian Herodotus observed. He noted that after Xerxes' defeat against the Greeks, that he descended into, quote-unquote, selfish overindulgence. And that was his words. So even the, the, histori- the secular historians of the day recognized the overindulgence and the sensual overindulgence that that King Xerxes was falling into. Conservative estimates say that at least 400 young women were conspired into this twisted affair. Some scholars think there may have been as many as 1,400. Even by Persian standards, this was wrong. This was not the normal way for a Persian king to choose his bride, to choose a queen. Usually, the Persian king would would select a queen from one of the noble families of Persia or... Uh, he would, and even beyond that, he would usually choose one of his closest advisors' relatives, which I think sheds a little bit of light onto last week why Memucan had this great idea to replace Vashti. I think he was hoping to be one of the advisors who's who would now have an extra political clout because perhaps the bride would be taken from his clan, from his family. But regardless, we we see that the king here is uh, is acting in a way that just demonstrates absolute depravity but in the midst of this depravity God is not off his throne he is skillfully at work amidst the terrible consequences that flow from sinful acts there are many of you in here who who can relate to terrible consequences lifelong after effects that come from your own sinful decisions bad decisions sinful habits stupid deeds foolish choices Or perhaps some of you have experienced devastating and harmful consequences from someone else's sin. You've been hurt, you've been abused, you've been left scarred. Whatever it might be, no matter how terrible the consequences of sin and of others' sin upon you, if we are Christians, we know that our God is working in and through those consequences, working all things together for his covenant people, for us. No one knows this more than some of the Bible's most important figures, like King David. David was sinned against. He had the consequences of others' sins against him, like King Saul, who, who hunted him down like an animal. And then he also suffered the consequences of his own grievous sins, like the whole Bathsheba incident. Yet he could confidently say in Psalm 23 Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days. Of my life, a person who belongs to God knows that God is working all things together, including the consequences of other sin against us and the consequences of our own sin for our good. I was recently listening to a, a talk by the late Chuck Colson. Everyone knows who Chuck Colson is, here probably. I was listening to a talk by Chuck Colson. He's one of the most well-known. Christian thinkers and apologists and activists of our day. And he tells the story of the consequences of his own sin. He was selfish, power hungry, and he made decisions that as the special counsel to to President Richard Nixon ended him up in jail as a result of the Watergate scandal. He ended up in jail. And though he regrets his sin, he acknowledges that it was the consequences of that sin, namely jail, that led to his conversion to Christ. He said this, quote, sometimes the worst things we do end up being the best things. What he was saying is not that that God condones sin or wants us to sin, but that God uses even the, the worst of sin of his people for his good purposes. So God used Chuck Colson's sin and the consequences that landed him in jail to transform him, To bring him to himself and then put in place a ministry that would end up well, affecting the lives of hundreds of thousands if not millions of people worldwide. God is at work in the midst of terrible consequences. Consequences brought about by sinful people making sinful decisions which reverberate onto others. And so we see that Xerxes' Xerxes decisions and consequences and, and that those decisions are putting other people in impossible circumstances. Which is what leads me to my next point. God is at work in the midst of trying circumstances. So at this point in the story, the author introduces us to some new characters, the main characters. First, Mordecai, verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Now, real quickly, just a little parenthetical note here. We want want to note that this first character is is called a Jew. Now, that word, Jew, was an exilic, post-exilic idiom for God's people it's derived from the word Judean because that means the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were simply called Judah. And those from that tribe, were, from that southern kingdom, were called Judeans. And the shorting, shortening of that word was how they ended up with the word Jew. Now, Mordecai, it turns out, was from the, the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now, the fact that one of his ancestors bears the name Kish probably means that he has some sort of familial relationship with King Saul, the first king of Israel. Now, you read in 1 Samuel 9 that Saul was also the son of a person named Kish. That's probably not the same Kish, but it it seems that this name Kish was probably something connected with that clan of the Benjaminites. And it may seem incidental, but next week we'll see how this this plays into the whole story. The fact that he was from the, the lineage of Saul. So Mordecai's ancestor named Kish had been deported with other exiles. As we read of in verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he had carried them all away. Now we read next in verse 7 that he, that is Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And then the author says the young woman had a beautiful figure, it was lovely to look at, and when her, when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, it's interesting here, as the author mentions that. So so we know the king is looking for beautiful young ladies. And now we're introduced to two new characters. And what he says about Esther, the first thing he has to say about her is that she was beautiful. She was lovely to look at. And so so we have here the the author building the tension. Uh Uh-oh, king's looking for beautiful women. Here's a beautiful young lady. But I think it's very interesting that he mentions her beauty... And then says that after her mother and father died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So, as if to say, this woman is already beautiful. She knows that now she doesn't have the protection of a mother and a father. What she has is Mordecai. She has Mordecai who's there to protect her, this beautiful young woman. It was a bad time to be a beautiful young lady in the kingdom of Persia. It was challenging circumstances that everybody found themselves in. Esther was an orphan. Her older cousin Mordecai is doing what he can to care for her. And now while the kingdom is being stirred up by this edict that will forever change the lives of so many families, including Esther and Mordecai, there's decisions that have to be made. These are difficult circumstances. These are scary circumstances. But God is at work. God is at work in the midst of the circumstances, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of the scary situations. God is at work. The Bible says, teaches us that God's people will face difficult circumstances and trials. And these situations have always been guided by a holy and good God with holy and good purposes for his people. And so there's many texts we could go to that you should know well. Romans 5, 3-4. through 4. James chapter 1, verses 2-4. through 4. But how about this one from 1 Peter 1? And the reason I I want to choose this one is because Peter loves to use exilic language to refer to the people of God, that we are are in exile, we are sojourners. And so he loves to use that language when he's referring to us. And he says this in verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ so trials are for our good if you're a Christian it is for your good and it is for his glory circumstances even very negative and trying circumstances never catch God off guard underneath the storm brewing in Sousa. God is working for the good of Esther and Mordecai and for all of his covenant people. These circumstances in Susa were, were working together for our good as well, you and me. Everything that's happening or that happened already in Susa back then, 2,500 years ago, was for your good and for my good. For it is ultimately through this situation that we are reading about today that God will preserve the lineage that will bring into the world the Messiah, Jesus, in whom we find our hope, with whom we have been united and declared co-heirs, children of God, the covenant people of God. Thus, these trying circumstances in Esther chapter 2 were for your good and for my good. We need to see that. God providentially working, having good purposes for Mordecai and Esther in the midst of their trying circumstances. I hope you believe that and you see that. But even if we do see it, we are still left a little troubled by the rest of the story. And So the next thing I want us to think about this morning is how God is at work in the midst of fleshly compromises. Now, I want to remind us again, this book isn't written so that we could have human examples to follow. It's written so that we might have divine providence to trust in. So we don't want to make too much of and read too much into Esther and Mordecai's actions here. The author doesn't spend a lot of time commenting on or filling in information regarding Mordecai and Esther's motives in any of the decisions they made. But Veggie Tales, this is not. This isn't Paul Grape. I think it's for good reason that many commentators see in both Esther and Mordecai some serious ethical compromises that leave us scratching our heads. To see that, we must remember that this book was written to the Jews. The original readers get to this point in the story and must be wondering this. Okay, okay, what is Esther going to do? How is Mordecai, the man who now is standing in the place of her own father, what's he going to do? How's he going to stand up for her? How is her kinsman protector going to keep this young orphan girl from a pagan, uncircumcised monster like Xerxes? What's he going to do? Only to read in verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed and many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was who had charge of the women. Wait. Why didn't Mordecai put up a fight? Wasn't he going to hide her away or, or something? Surely surely he was aware of what was going to happen to her and what she was going to be subjected to. The verb here, taken away, or was taken, well, it's not a violent verb. Uh, you can be sure that no one, no one was going to be allowed to cross the king, but, but we're still left wondering why Mordecai or Esther don't at least try. Mordecai wasn't acting like Moses' parents who defied the orders of a very powerful Pharaoh and hid their son so that he wouldn't be thrown into the Nile. So let me ask you fathers, Well, what would you do in this circumstance? Let me just ask you. This man wants your daughter. He wants to take her. He wants to violate her. I'll tell you what I would do. I would die first. They'd have to put a sword through my belly before they got to my daughter. So you left scratching your head at what's going on here. Matter of fact, the next verses only add to our confusion. It says here that Esther was taken to the palace under hegei And we read this in verse 9. And the young woman, that is Esther, pleased him and won his favor. Now at first glance, when you hear that she won his favor, you may be thinking, wow, this is just like Daniel, right? Daniel found favor in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Or going further back in redemptive history, maybe this is just like Joseph, because it says that Joseph found favor in Potiphar's house. But the author doesn't say she found favor. He says that she won favor. Now at first, when I looked at this, I just thought, well, that's just semantics. But it's not mere semantics. In the Hebrew, there is a difference. The phrase found favor, matzahain, that phrase, found favor, implies that grace falls upon someone regardless of their effort. But the, word, the phrase nasahain carries the idea of someone actively working for, to obtain, to even take favor. This is a much less flattering phrase in the Hebrew. So we read of Joseph in Genesis 39 And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in Daniel chapter 1, we see that they found favor. We're reading something different in those texts than what we're reading here. Verse 9, And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. She is actively working to win favor, and it works. Now, I don't want to make too much of it, but I do think it shows that Esther is in it to win it. She is making an effort to be the chosen one. Matter of fact, the next verse seems to imply that Mordecai likewise had a winning strategy. Verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And what, what are we to make of Mordecai's orders here? There's no doubt that there was some anti-Semitism in the kingdom. So perhaps Mordecai is, just trying, is worried about that. He's just trying to protect her from the anti-Semitism. But we've got to ask the question, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? If she shares that she's a Jew, she's going to be disqualified and sent back. Why hide this? The original readers and, and us are wondering why, why Mordecai is urging her to hide not only her ethnicity but her faith. For to be a Jew was to be a worshiper of Yahweh. One thing is for sure, this is the exact opposite of other Jewish exilic heroes like, well, like Daniel and his friends I mentioned earlier or even like Ezra and Nehemiah. Plus there's something else that should bother us here. And that is the fact that no one knew that Mordecai and Esther were Jews. Apparently they had blended in quite well. Now we know that From this very book that there were other Jews in the kingdom that stood out clearly. When Haman sells his evil plot in chapter 3, he sells his evil plot to Xerxes to try to kill all the Jews. We read in verse 8, the second half of verse 8, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. So when the edict goes out for the Jews to be destroyed, it is assumed that the people know and recognize who the Jews actually are. But Mordecai and Esther, for some reason, no one knows they're Jews. And they work hard to keep it secret. Now, I may be speculating way too much with this. But it does at least least seem to give us pause. And there does seem to be some indication of at least some sort of cowardice and compromise on the part of Mordecai and Esther. We see it even more in verse 9. Back up to verse 9. He quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food. Why mention something like that? Food. The very mention of food would have caused a Jewish reader to sit up in his seat and take notice. For the dietary laws were one of the main ways the Jewish people kept themselves distinct, different from everyone around them. And there's no doubt that the food being served in a Persian court like this was not kosher. Again, compare Esther to Daniel. Daniel. We see Daniel operating in the exact opposite way, refusing, at the risk of his life, refusing to take the unclean meat from the king's table, distinguishing himself from the others. But Esther allowed herself to be indistinguishable from those around her. Now we want to be fair to Esther and Mordecai. They're in a tough place. Without a doubt, Esther is a victim here. She is a victim. But the original readers would have been left wondering why they didn't put up more of a fight. Why were they willing to so easily be assimilated into the culture and worse, into this perverse process of choosing a new queen? And the process was perverse. Verses 12 through 14 tell us that the young ladies were subjected to 12 months of beauty treatments and then each would go in to spend a night with the king. There's no way to sugarcoat it. These young ladies are being lined up to have one night stands with the king so he could choose the one he liked best. That's what the author is talking about here when he says they go into the king. These young girls weren't going in to read poetry to the king all night. And when it was all over, we read this in verse 14. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. And here we see the deep tragedy of all of this. These poor young women were paraded one by one before the king so he could do with them as he wished, and then even more humiliating, the vast majority of them would live the rest of their lives as one of his concubines but never see him again. They were consigned to a life of isolated, perpetual widowhood. And so the author of Esther has carefully set the scene for us. He has crafted the story so we see the details of everything that's happening in the king's palace. But he hasn't told us yet what Esther's going to do or what's happening to her. So imagine you're reading this for the first time. You're a young Jewish girl or you're a Jewish dad or mom or you're just a pious Jew in general and you're gripped with anticipation of how Esther is going to get out of this. Surely she would not go to bed with an uncircumcised Gentile. Surely now she would stand up and keep her purity intact. But we read in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor, that's that same phrase again. Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She asked Hegai for his suggestion because she intends to be successful. And so with shock at reading what's happening here, we get to verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor. That's that same phrase again. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. She not only won favor, she won the crown. Esther, daughter of Abichail, you are the next Persian queen. Congratulations. Well, the king was happy with the results, even if the readers are left stunned. The king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. And so the readers are left at the end of verse 18 wondering, what? Why did all this just happen? What we see so far is that poor Esther, and she was a victim. And we're going to see a transformation in Esther as the story goes along. What we're going to see is that poor Esther was more compliant and passive than Vashti. She'll go along with the king's humiliating plan. Vashti wouldn't. She's the anti-Vashti. And it's come at the cost of her hiding her heritage and her faith and sacrificing her purity. The original readers didn't know it yet at this point in the story, but God had purposes in Esther's and Mordecai's compromises. God's providence is such that he can and does fold the sinful intentions and actions of his people into his purposes. The best example of this in scripture is the the account that Todd read at the very beginning of the service where where Joseph's brothers come to him and and they're, they're groveling and he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's providence is such that he can rule over sin. Now, God's providence does not give us a license to sin. Romans 6.1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. By no means should we compromise. We should be distinct. We should be different from the evil world we live in. We should not assimilate into the world's evil systems. Ephesians 4:17 says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Romans 12:2 says do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see we too, like Esther and Mordecai, are people caught between two kingdoms. And we must remember where we belong and where our citizenship is really located. But sometimes, oftentimes, we fail And when we do fail, when we are too afraid to to step up, when we are too intimidated to stand out, when the circumstances are so heavy that we adjust ourselves and make moral compromises, when that does happen, friends, know that your God is still at work. His providential plans aren't resting on your ability not to compromise. If it were, we were all in a whole lot of trouble. And so what do we do? We remember that he's still for us and not against us. We remember that he's working all things together for our good. And so we repent of our sin and we trust and we have faith in his grace to forgive us and to grow us and to continue the good work that he's doing in us as he works all things together for his glory and for our good. And so that's where I want us to end this morning. Focusing on the providence and the grace of our God. I'm sorry if I de Esther for you this morning. If you're a Christian here this morning, God providentially drew you to himself and you did nothing to win his favor. You found favor because he gave it to you. The consequences of our sin were overwhelming for the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. The circumstances we found ourselves in were devastating for we too were serving the worldly kingdom And we were serving an evil pretender to the throne. Verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 2 says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And our compromise was serious. We exchanged the glory of God for a lie. And we were under just condemnation. Verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, among whom we also... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But just as God took providential initiative to rescue Esther and Mordecai and all the Jews, despite their sin, so too he has rescued us, for by grace alone we have been saved. We were chosen as his precious possession. So we read these beautiful words in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Oh, believer, this morning, I want you to leave here exalting Jesus, who took the consequences of your sin upon himself, who entered into the circumstances of our human existence, who forgave every compromise we ever fell into, He lived a perfect life of no compromise on our behalf so that in him we are now saved, we are now set apart. Praise the God who takes messes like us and transforms us into treasured and beautiful people for his own possession. Leave here praising that God this morning. An unbeliever, I call on you to repent this morning. Turn from your sin. Just as Ahasuerus was living for himself to please himself, centered on himself. That is what you were doing, and I pray that God would open your blind eyes to see it. I beg you to repent of your sin and come to Christ, the only one who can rescue you from yourself and from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us, help us to see your word in all of its raw beauty. I thank you that we have Esther and not Cinderella. I thank you that we have heroes that are highly flawed in the scripture. Forgive us, forgive the church in America for turning your holy book about your son into fairy tales. And draw us to yourself closer than we've ever been before That we might see in the midst of difficult, difficult consequences from our sin and the sins of others. And difficult, trying circumstances. And if we'll be honest, many, many compromises. Lord, help us to see you are still at work. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God, we praise you and we thank you. Be with us now as we finish our service in song. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.